There was a very famous study that was done at Princeton University back in the 70s uh, where there were 40 students who were split into two groups. Uh, one of the groups was asked to go away and to study the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story that we're very familiar with. And the other group was asked to go away and to research what job opportunities there were for people who were studying theology. So two fairly different sets of assignments that they needed to do. So they went away and they prepared their talks. And then on the day when they needed to present, they came back together and they were all gathered in one room. And so one at a time, they were then told that they needed to go to a different part of the campus uh, to go and present their talk. But as they left, each person was told one of three things. One group was told that they were running late and they needed to get there as quickly as possible because everyone was waiting for them. A second group was told that they weren't running late, but they needed to get there as quickly as they could. And a third group was told that they had plenty of time, and so they didn't need to rush, they could kind of get there when they were ready. And so each of them then set out one at a time. Now, the people who were putting this study together had intentionally set it up so that there was someone on the way that they had to walk past who was pretending to cough and acting like they had severe abdominal pains and was in a lot of trouble. Because the whole purpose of the project was to be able to see, did it make any difference whether the people who had studied the parable of the Good Samaritan were more likely to stop and help this person, exactly like the story unfolds, or whether it didn't make any difference whatsoever. Sure enough, the only thing that made a difference was how much time people were told that they had. So everyone, regardless of which topic they were talking on, who was told that they were running late, only 10% of them stopped to help the person. So just think about that for a minute. A whole bunch of people had done an assignment on the parable of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> They're on their way to present a talk on that, but because they'd been told they were running late, the majority of them, the vast majority of them, didn't stop to help someone who was clearly having trouble. On the other hand, those who were told that they had plenty of time, over two-thirds of them stopped. But again, it didn't make any difference whether they'd read the parable of the Good Samaritan and were presenting on that, or whether they were just talking about job opportunities for people who were studying theology. It's a very famous study because it reminds us that our expectations about how much time we have has a very significant impact on whether we choose to stop and help people, particularly people who are in need. Today we're going to continue this interrupted series where we're looking at a number of stories throughout scriptures, uh, scripture, a number of different characters who had their lives interrupted in all sorts of different ways to see how we can respond when interruptions come our way. And so today we're looking at this snapshot from the life of Jesus. And so as always, you have your teaching notes inside of Caring Connection. And so if you want to jot some things down as we go through, please feel free to do that. In terms of the background to this passage and what's been happening just before, uh, Jesus has been going around the place teaching people and helping them to understand what it means uh, to find themselves in this thing that he's been talking about called the kingdom, which we understand as living life the way that God created us to live. He's been using parables and stories and different illustrations to help people understand this is what it looks like to get swept up in what God is doing. They've then set out across Lake Galilee, and so a very famous story that we've read before where Jesus uh, falls asleep in the boat and a big storm comes up and his disciples think they're going to drown. They wake Jesus up and Jesus calms the storm and asks them this very profound question, don't you trust me? Even after everything you've seen, even after everything I've been talking about, do you still not trust me? 
They make their way across the lake and they end up on the other side and Jesus heals a man who's been possessed by demons. But the people who are in the town over there aren't terribly thrilled about this. They're kind of a little bit scared about the fact that Jesus has got this power. But they're also a little bit frustrated because Jesus has sent all of those demons into some pigs who've then run off the edge of the cliff. And so all of these people have also lost all their pigs and so they're not very happy about that either. So they say, Jesus, if you wouldn't mind just going back across the other side of the lake, that'd be really great. And so sure enough, he and his disciples get back in the boat They head over to the other side of the lake where they've just come from, and that's where we pick up our story today. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. When Jesus returned to the other side of the lake, the people welcomed him because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus arrived. He was an official in the local synagogue, and he threw himself down at Jesus' feet and begged him to, to go to his home because his only daughter, who was 12 years old, was dying. And so here we have Jesus' first interruption in our story today. We can assume that Jesus was expecting to go back across the lake, back to this town where people were really happy that he was back to continue teaching. He was probably planning to go somewhere and to continue to talk about what it means to be a part of the kingdom and continuing to help his disciples understand what it means to follow him. But as soon as they get off the boat and enter into the town, here comes this man Jairus, who is an official from the local synagogue. And so this is someone who's kind of like Joyce or Roger or Ross, someone who had responsibility in their local synagogue for overseeing the worship services and also for caring for people who were a part of the synagogue community. That's the sort of role that Jairus was in. And so he rushes up to Jesus and he throws himself down at his feet. And he says, my 12-year-old daughter is dying. Can you please come to my house and do something about it? And we can completely understand Jairus' desperation. I was thinking about this this, uh, this this week and thinking that if Rachel, who's out helping in God's gang, uh, if she was dying and I knew that Jesus was coming into town, I would absolutely do everything that I possibly could to go and see Jesus and say, will you come And please heal my daughter. I'll do anything that you want if you just make her well again. So verse 42 continues. Jesus says yes. And as he went along, the people were crowding him from every side. There's this huge crowd of people that have gathered around Jesus. Again, they're excited that he's back. But now they've also heard that he's going to go and heal this sick girl. And so they're really excited about that too. There's a huge crowd that's all following him along. Verse 43, among them was a woman who had suffered from severe bleeding for 12 years. She'd spent all she had on doctors, but no one had been able to cure her. She came up in the crowd behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and her bleeding stopped at once. Jesus asked, who touched me? Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, the people are all around you and crowding in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I knew it when the power went out of me. And so here we find that Jesus is interrupted again. He's on his way to Jairus' house to, in theory, heal his daughter. And he's interrupted and he stops in the middle of this crowd. Again, picture the scene. There's all these people all jostling around everywhere, people bumping into each other all over the place. But Jesus stops and he says, hold on a minute, who touched me? And it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Of course someone touched you, Jesus. People were bumping into you. There's a big crowd. Everyone's really, really excited. And so Peter, 
as always, the mouthpiece for all of us to say the things that are most obvious, says, uh, come on, Jesus, <laughs> of course someone touched you. There's a big crowd here. Everyone's being touched by everyone else. It's kind of what's going on. We're in a crowd. But Jesus recognises that someone has intentionally reached out and touched him because he's felt the healing power go out of him. And this is really, really profound. We've talked many times about how Jesus isn't this massive superhero who floats above humanity and doesn't get impacted by the things that he does. Here we recognise that when Jesus reaches out and heals someone, power goes out of him. It actually costs Jesus to heal people and to do the work that he did. Well, verse 47, the woman saw that she had been found out and so she came trembling and threw herself at Jesus' feet. And there in front of everybody, she told him why she'd touched him and how she'd been healed at once. So I want you to put yourself into the shoes of this woman. Just think about what it would be like to be her for just a minute. And recognise that the words that we're told in this passage is that she felt like she had been found out. This woman has probably been in hiding for years and years. She has probably been really, really scared about being caught out. For 12 years, she's been bleeding. Bleeding internally, most people would suspect, but some people would also say it could have been a menstruation problem that she had. Either way, whatever was going on for her, most people would agree that she was in considerable pain, that she would have been suffering significantly. But more than that, because this was a blood issue, she was ceremonially unclean, which meant that she wasn't able to go to the temple or to the synagogue. She wasn't able to participate in normal, everyday life. So she was an outcast on the fringes of society, completely in pain. But we're also told that no one has been able to help her. In fact, in Mark's account of this story, she's actually been worse because of all the treatments that she's had. Imagine that. You go to the doctor and you don't get better. In actual fact, you get worse. And this has happened over and over and over for her over 12 years. She's spent all of the money that she's got trying to get well. And so here she is, broke, in pain, desperate, fed up, had enough of all of this. But in desperation, she hears that Jesus is coming back into town. And so in the midst of the crowd, she hopes that she can just sneak her way to him and thinks, if I can just reach out and touch the edge of his cloak, then maybe I can be healed. And so, sure enough, she reaches out, she touches him, and instantly she knows, yes, the bleeding has stopped for the first time in 12 years, she feels well. Imagine what that must have been like for her. And so her hope at this point, I'm sure, was that she could just kind of quietly sneak away into the background and just get on with her life. Not need to mention this to anyone, but just be able to get back into normal everyday life. But now Jesus has stopped. The crowd has stopped. Everyone's gone quiet. And you hear Jesus say, who touched me? Imagine how you're feeling in this moment. You feel caught. You feel like you've been found out. You're so embarrassed about what's happened. And so you crawl your way back to Jesus. You throw yourself at his feet. 
and, you've expl- and you explain what's happened. Your expectation at this point is probably that you're going to get a pretty significant telling off, that you're expecting this religious teacher to say, how dare you come and touch me and make me unclean? How could you do that without asking my permission? How dare you do that? That's probably what your expectation is. But look at Jesus' response and remember what he's just been doing, going across the lake, the storm, the demons, the pigs, come back across the other side. Jairus has said, we need to go because my daughter is dying. And look at Jesus' response in the midst of all of this. In verse 48, he says, my daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. My daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So again, imagine what it must have been like for this woman. Jesus doesn't leave you lying there on the ground, but he picks you up. He looks you fully in the face. He uses this beautiful term, my daughter, absolute intimacy. And he says, your faith has made you well. Your trust has made you well. It's not because I've got some magic coat on that you've been healed. It's because you trust me. It's because you trust in who I am and what I can do. But then Jesus says, go in peace. Go in fullness. Go in wholeness. Go and experience life the way that it's supposed to be. So, verse 49. While Jesus was saying this, a messenger came from the official's house. Remember the other part of the story that's going on right here. This official comes up to Jairus and says, your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher any longer. So now put yourself in the shoes of Jairus and imagine how you'd be feeling. If it was me, I would be so angry, so frustrated. Jesus, why did you need to stop and wait and heal this woman? Couldn't you have done that on the way back? Couldn't you have just let her go? Why did you have to stop the crowd? Why did you have to wait and single her out? My daughter has died because you allowed yourself to get interrupted. Thank you so much. I put all my trust in you. I was waiting for you to deliver and you have let me down. Imagine how Jairus must have been feeling. But Jesus heard what the official said and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, only believe and she will be well. Again, Jesus says, trust me, trust me. Everything's going to be okay. So when Jesus arrived at the house, he wouldn't let anyone go in with him except for Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Everyone there was crying and mourning for the child. Jesus said, don't cry. The child's not dead. She's only sleeping. They all made fun of him because they knew that she was dead. This would have been quite a scene that was happening here. This isn't just a quiet little somber environment where people are just quietly mourning. This is a Jewish culture where people would have been beside themselves. In Mark's account, it talks about how there's a massive commotion going on outside of the house. People tell us that there's research that would show that there were probably people who were playing the flute, people who were playing the violin. There would have been people singing psalms of lament. They would have been pouring their grief out, wailing and screaming. There's a lot of noise that would have been happening outside of this house. But Jesus says, don't worry about it. It's okay. She's just sleeping. 
And they all laugh at him. Are you crazy, Jesus? Of course she's not sleeping. The doctor's been, he's said that she has died. We're not here just for a party. We're here because we know that this little girl has died. What do you mean she's just sleeping? What's wrong with you? But Jesus steps confidently into the house. He leaves the crowd full of doubters outside and takes in the three closest people that he often brings with him, Peter, John and James, as well as the girl's parents. In verse 54, Jesus took the girl by the hand and he called out, Get up, child. Again, beautiful, intimate statement, words that would have been used probably every morning by the girl's mother and father when they woke her up gently. Get up, child. It's time to get going. Her life returned and she got up at once. And Jesus ordered them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astounded, but Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus brings this girl back to life. Everyone is amazed. They're blown away. And Jesus says, don't forget to give her something to eat. Jesus thinks about the practical needs and the practical realities of what needs to happen here, but a reminder that she's now fully alive. So give her something to eat. And then he says what he says often throughout Scripture. Don't tell anyone about this. He doesn't want a huge crowd of people following him because they think that he can do all these amazing tricks. He doesn't want to start a revolution that's not ready to start yet. He says, this is just for you. Peter, John, James, parents, this is just for you to increase your trust, to increase your belief in who I am and what I can do. So to me, as we look at this story, there's a number of things that we can learn about Jesus that are super, super helpful in our understanding of who he is and what he's all about. The first one is that Jesus is never too busy. Jesus is never too busy to stop. Just think about the interruptions that Jesus goes through here. First of all, Jairus coming up and interrupting him. Then as they're on their way to Jairus' house, the woman coming. And then as he gets to the house, all of these people around. There's all of these interruptions that happen for Jesus, but he's never too busy. And throughout Scripture, we see that that's the case. Jesus over and over and over again is interrupted. But never once do we see him say, I'm sorry, I don't actually have time for you today. I've got something else to do. I've got somewhere else to be. Jesus is never like that. He is never too busy to stop for those who are searching and seeking him. He always wants to give his full attention to those who are seeking him. Secondly, we recognize that Jesus cares about more than just our health. Sometimes we can get consumed with how we're feeling physically and what's going on for us. But again, we see Jesus time and time again focusing on more than just people's healing. Of course, we believe that Jesus wants us to be able to experience life as well as we possibly can. But we also know that Jesus actually cares more about what's going on inside for us than he does just about what's happening for us physically. For this woman in the story... One of the reasons why he stopped was so that she could be welcomed back into society in every way possible. He wanted to restore her dignity, restore her identity, help her to know you're not just physically well, 
you are whole, you are complete, you can now participate in life. And I don't want you just to know that, I want everyone to be aware of that. And for us it's the same. Jesus cares more about how we're doing inside than he does just about our physical needs. We also recognise that Jesus has got a different perspective than what we do. In a huge crowd, Jesus can pick out one person who is searching for him and seeking him. And Jesus can see beyond what our timelines are. As we talked about, for Jairus, there's this massive reality check to say, it's over, it's finished, you missed your chance. But Jesus can see beyond that. Jesus operates on a different timeline than us and sees things from a different perspective. And then lastly, we recognise that Jesus shows us that the interruptions that we face in our lives, even though we might feel like they're interruptions, sometimes are actually the places where God is the most at work. We see Jesus stopping and recognising he's a place where God's at work. He's a person in whose life God is at work. And there's nothing that's more important than that. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to engage with what God is doing right now. So as we head into this week, a reflection question I'd like to throw at us is this. Am I willing to trust Jesus enough to allow him to interrupt me? Am I willing to trust Jesus enough to allow him to interrupt me? And as you think about that, I want you to think about what you've got coming up this week. So what's on for you this week? For some of us, we've got work coming up this week. For others of us, we've got school coming up this week. For others of us, we have appointments that are coming up this week. We have people that we're going to see. We have family responsibilities that we need to do, tasks that we need to do around the place. So think a little bit about what your week looks like this week and what's coming up for you. And the question that I want us to ask is what's my major focus in all of those things? As I think about this week, is my focus on saying, I just hope I can get everything done. I just hope that I can get to all my appointments, I can get all my tasks done, I can get everything finished and I can just get it, get through the week. Get to the end of the week and be able to make it. Is that what our focus is? Or are we willing to open our eyes a little bit to say, what are the opportunities as I head into this week where I might be able to partner with the work that God is doing around me? Another way of saying this is to say, is our focus on the tasks that are ahead of us this week or is it on the people that we will have the privilege of being able to interact with day in and day out? Is my focus just on getting things done, tick them off the list, finished, 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 good riddance? Or is my focus on stopping long enough to look people in the eye to be able to ask people, how are you doing? To be able to give someone a smile, to just be able to say, hello. What's our focus as we head into this week? Are we willing to trust Jesus enough to interrupt our tasks to be able to see what he's up to? So as I go into this week, am I willing to slow down enough to be able to actually wait and be present and see people the way that God sees them, to see the opportunities that might be right in front of me? Am I too focused on tasks to miss out on the opportunities to be able to participate in the restoration that God is doing in people's lives? The opportunity to bring peace 
into someone else's life, even if it's just for a moment? Am I willing to slow down enough to stop and look at things from Jesus' perspective, to be able to step out of the busyness of all the stuff that I need to do and be able to see things the way that he does? Throughout this passage, Jesus keeps coming back to this idea of faith and trust. Faith and trust. To the woman, to Jairus, he says, it's your faith, it's your trust that makes the difference. So the challenge for us is to say, do I trust Jesus? Do I trust his priorities? Do I trust his perspectives? Do I trust his way of life? What he's got for me this week? And if so, am I willing to trust him enough to let him interrupt me? Even if it's inconvenient, even if it's not exactly what I thought was going to happen, am I willing to trust him so that I can be a part of the work that he's doing? I'm going to pray that we would be willing to go on that journey with him and then I'll hand over to Joyce who's going to lead us in communion. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that you see things from a completely different perspective to us. That while you were here on earth, we see you over and over again, making it a priority to see the needs of the people that you were interacting with. To be able to step outside of activity and to be able to recognise someone who was searching, someone who was seeking, someone who was craving you. And over and over again, we see you willing to be interrupted in your life. It's really amazing when we recognise that you had three years in which to do all the things that God had planned for you to do and yet never do we see you saying, I've got too much to do, I have to get to this thing, this is the next thing. Every day you're able to get up and just be present exactly where God wanted you to be. That's the sort of life that I crave and that we crave. An opportunity as we step into this week not to just be focused on getting stuff done, not to be focused on just getting through another week, but being able to say, what does it look like this week for us to see people the way that you do, to come alongside of people the way that you do, to be able to have your perspective, your priorities in our lives? In some ways, that is a question of trust because all these other things do crowd in on us all the time. And so I pray that you would continue to challenge us about what it looks like to put you first in our lives and to trust that your way is the best way. And that as we do, we can have amazing opportunities to be able to know that we're a part of the restoration work that you're doing, a part of the work of bringing peace into this world, into this neighbourhood, into the interactions that we have with people as we go into this week. In your name we pray. Amen.